You was mighty a fella for me if she called her Black Rock. No. We don't have reason. Got the blood of a whole lot of that general strike in 1913. They were batting into the ground and rings out by the harsh police. I love going down, down the Tarcastle Street, looking down the river. Looking at the ships coming from all parts of the world. Hello again and welcome back to Time Waves on Rick Radio, your radio history of Dublin 4 back with you once again. Apologies for the brief period of radio silence last month, but we're delighted to be back with you again as the year draws to a close. In the meantime, while we were away, the Ringsend and District Historical Society got up and running and I'll be telling you a little bit more about the society and how you can get involved at the end of today's show. Now, I don't have a guest with me tonight. Instead, as it's coming towards the end of the year, towards Christmas, a time when people would traditionally have settled around the fire or the kitchen table and swapped stories, I thought we'd do something slightly different. So on this episode, I have a few tales of times past in Ringsend, Irish Town and the Docks that I think will warm the cockles of your heart in these cold midwinter days. So, first of all, we all know that Ringsend is synonymous with the sea. It's not known as Raytown for nothing. Ringsend was once a transit point for the riches of the sea and the riches of the earth, whether they were brought ashore in fishing boats or on cargo ships. And it wasn't just Ray either. The town was awash with herring and mackerel and even at one time with oysters from the Poolbeg oyster bed. But one Sunday in 1950, the catch of the day was something very, very different. Because that was the day the people of Ringsend went fishing for bananas in Dublin Bay. Let me explain. In 1950, Ireland was still subject to the rationing that had been in place during the emergency, the Second World War. A lot of foods and products that seem quite ordinary and unexceptional today were exciting and exotic back then. And one of the most exotic was the banana. It was very hard to get your hands on one. If you've ever heard the old song, Yes, We Have No Bananas, that's what it was about. They were a, a rare commodity and a rare treat. Today, if a kid found a banana in their Christmas stocking or their Halloween goodie bag, they'd probably feel like they'd been mugged. But back in 1950, that would have been the ultimate treat for any youngster. So what happened briefly was this. One morning in 1950, a Norwegian cargo ship called the Abraham Lincoln docked in the harbour near Alexandra Basin. On board, all the way from the West Indies, it had 160 tonnes of fruit worth about £11,000, which is a huge sum at the time. Only this particular pile of fruit was worth precisely zilch. Because as soon as the cargo hold was open, it became obvious that someone had got their sums wrong or their dates wrong and instead of mounds of fresh delicacies ready for the shops and stalls of Dublin, the hold was a mess of overripe fruit and rotten mush. Understandably, the tropical fruit company refused to take any of it and as a result, tons of the stuff was simply dumped into Dublin Bay. But as it turned out, the bananas were still edible 
too ripe to send to the shops, but perfectly edible. And when the people of Ringsend found out about this, it turned into a feeding frenzy. A veritable Ringsend Navy made its way across Dublin Bay, remember no East Link Bridge at the time, in boats of all sizes full of excitable women, men, children. And the sailors of the Abraham Lincoln, seeing this armada of hungry raytowners coming towards them in their little flotilla, surrendered immediately. They began tossing bunches of bananas onto the little boats and canoes, where they were eagerly snatched up and rowed back to Ringsend, as fast as the oars of the little boats could carry them. That night, the people of Ringsend feasted as they never had before, as though the war had never happened, and all was right in a world that was bright and bountiful and tasted of bananas. So now, you know the story of the Ringsend Banana Catch of 1950, and if you don't believe me, check out Rick Radio's Facebook page, where hopefully you'll see a lovely picture of Dockers William Kempel and George Tilly holding bunches of the finest Caribbean bananas on that memorable day 72 years ago. But, as you know, some people's appetites stretch much further than exotic fruits. Money is the root of all evil, they say, and the pursuit of money has driven men to desperate things. And almost a century ago, in Irish town, a few particularly desperate men pulled off the Stella Gardens heist of 1924. Now, Stella Gardens was barely 10 years old at this time. It was always referred to as being in Irish town at that time, although many would contend then and now that it is in Ringsend. And even though back then its inhabitants would have been slightly better off than their neighbours, being mostly artisans and tradesmen, it was still a lean time in the new free state, still recovering from the wars of the previous decade. On the 8th of December 1924, so exactly 98 years to the day from when I'm recording this, a man named Peter Knowles knocked on the door of 15 Stella Gardens and went inside. Now, 15 Stella Gardens is more formally known today as 15 Dermot O'Hurley Avenue. It's opposite the new flats as you walk down towards the dollar from Irish Town Road. Mr. Knowles of 15 Sandymount Terrace had gone inside to collect the rent. He was a rent collector for Pembroke Urban District Council, which was the local authority at the time, before the corpo came along. And as Mr. Knowles left 15 Stella Gardens on that December afternoon, with a bag in his hand and another slung around his body, he noticed three slightly dodgy-looking fellows in long coats leaning against the wall outside. In a moment, one of the men rushed towards him. To his horror, Mr. Knowles saw the man produce a revolver from his coat pocket. The instruction was simple and to the point. Hand over the bag, the man said to Mr. Knowles, or I will shoot you. Well, Mr. Knowles was no hero and no fool either, and he lived to tell the tale. He handed over the bag and the three men leapt onto their bicycles and made their escape. Mr. Knowles roared to two men driving empty carts who gave chase as the robbers 
made their way through Stella Gardens. And a young lad called Gerard O'Neill, who lived at number 57, what's now Celestine Avenue, also gave chase as the men escaped with their loot. It was a cool £30 altogether, not a bad haul in 1925 or 1924. It would certainly buy you plenty of bananas if you could get hold of them, which you probably couldn't. There's an old saying that crime doesn't pay. It's not always true, really depends on the size of the crime. But in this instance, our three miscreants didn't get away with their ill-gotten gains. One bag of swag was found behind the Star of the Sea Church in Sandymount, and the other was discovered in a pub in Hollis Street. In total, £29, 9 shillings and sixpence were recovered meaning the robbers got away with a mere ten shillings and sixpence, or more likely, they never got a chance to pick up their loot. Nor did they get away with their liberty. The culprits were allegedly identified at Dunlera District Court as Patrick Delaney, a clerk from Mount Brown, Patrick Carroll and a third man called Redmond. Carroll owned up, Redmond got off, and Delaney was also convicted and sent to Mount Joy. So, the next time you wander down Dermot or Hurley Avenue on a cold winter's afternoon, keep an eye out for corner boys in long coats. Now, I have one final tale to leave you with. And for this one, I'm going to leave you in the capable hands of a certain Mr. William McGuinness. These are his reminiscences of growing up in Ring's End in the 1930s and 1940s as published in a, a long-forgotten magazine, the Irish Digest, in 1961. Listeners of a certain vintage might recognise some of the names and places, and everyone else, I hope, will cherish this very vivid journey into Ringsend's past. So, as I said, these are the reminiscences of William McGuinness. We were regarded as a strange lot. For 700 years, the Murphys and the Whelans had intermarried with the Purcells and the Sims. But that didn't matter because, in time, they all became the same happy family, and their sons and daughters became known as the Ringsenders, or the Ray Eaters from over the bridge. When I was a child of eight, our village was invaded by what then seemed to me an army of men. They were all big foreign men from the country parts of Ireland and their leader, the working ganger man, wore his cap back to front. And the order he gave to his navvies was knock down whiskey roll. I can still see myself as the child I was then, and I can remember the hot, salty-tasting tear that I licked off my little hand. To me, it seemed like this was the end of the world. No longer could I spend my halfpenny in old Granny Carey's little shop. It wasn't really a shop, it was just a little whitewashed cottage, the same as all the others, that were built in a row and rang from the chapel to Tom Mellon's shop. But Mellon's was a real shop, and I remember that even as a child, I didn't like going in there. It wasn't the same. Granny Carey's was smashing. It had a green painted half door, and there was always a load of logs or coal or bundles of sticks and an old pair of scales to play with while Granny Carey went to get you a halfpenny apple or a halfpenny worth of bullseyes. To me then, she was an old woman with 
cheeks as red as the rosy apples she would give you if you went for a message for her. Like all the real ringsend women, she always wore a shawl and she had an apron with two large patch pockets in which she kept her money. She was a hard-working little huckster shopkeeper, the like of which one rarely sees today. And many the hard-up woman she helped out with the loan of a shilling. A few days later, Whiskey Row was reduced to heaps of stones and rubble. Granny Carey's wee shop was gone forever. And even though the new blocks of flats were called Whelan House, after one of my cousins who was hanged in Mountjoy Prison during the Troubles. Nothing could soften the blow that robbed me of those happy moments I'd known under the smoky paraffin lamplight of Granny Carey's shop. Ring's End, lying on the south side of the River Liffey in Dublin, was in my earlier years a historic place. It is recorded that Oliver Cromwell landed at the Shelley Banks and was chased back to the sea before he got halfway up the Pigeon House Road by a crowd of hostile Ringsend women. Yet we were a friendly race for all that, and the city people from Dublin knew that we made good friends or bad enemies. We were regarded as a clannish lot, who were better left alone, for our motto was H-O-H-A, which meant hit one, hit all. This unity, which was bred into us from birth, had its drawbacks. For if you wanted to fight, you had to take a tram car into Dublin and look for a stranger, because on Ring's End, we were all related. Ring's End in my young days had more characters to the square mile than I've met in the whole of London. But we didn't regard them as characters. To us, they were just normal ringsend people. Being reared on the coast, we were all sailors, as our fathers and grandfathers had been before us. As a matter of fact, some of our grandmothers had gone to sea as well, as cooks on their husband's schooners. We were a village that produced some great footballers, men like John Joe Flood and Joe Leonard, not forgetting perhaps the most famous of them all, Bob Fulham, one-time captain of Shamrock Rovers. Give it to Bob, that was the cry from the crowd, when Fulham was on the field. Bob was a big man with a powerful drive. Once, while playing against the Italians, he took a free kick and hit the ball so hard that when it hit one of the Italian players, he was knocked unconscious. Everyone in our village had a nickname. There was Bass, Lucky, Adabat, Stale Loaf, Henry the Wicked Chicken, the Greek, Airedale, Nordy, Bomber, Greasy Meat, Half a Cow, Bungo, and others too numerous to mention. Our grandfathers and some of our fathers were men who had gone round Cape Horn in sailing ships. And the best compliment that could be paid to a boy going to school in my time was for some old sea dog to tell you that your father was a good sailor. I remember the day old sailor Tracy told me that about mine 
as we stood chatting outside Ducky Austin's. To me, Sailor Tracy was Ringsend's greatest sailor. He was a man who was a legend among local school kids. And I honestly believe that he taught us more than the six masters we had in the school. A small little man, he always wore an overcoat and a battered sailor's cap with a shiny black peak. And he smoked a, a blackened clay pipe that stank to the heavens. A sailor claimed he'd sailed so far north that the compass was reading south. He was my hero, and no boy could have asked for a better one. He had smoked opium in China, had learned yogi in Tibet, had drank his way through three revolutions in South America, had dug for gold in the Klondike, and had scuttled behind a stagecoach right across Canada. It was actually unheard of for anyone in Ring's End to be considered a character and we were taught never to contradict our elders. If anyone ever doubted Sailor Tracy's stories, I never heard them say so. Of course, that was Ring's End in the old days, well before that bit of a war broke out with some fellow called Hitler. We really didn't know what was on till a little Ring's End trawler, the Lucas, was sunk. And Mrs. Connolly's three sons were the first Ring's Enders to die. We lost many more after that, and Johnny, old Tom Ward's son, joined the Irish Guards. I didn't know him very well, but his granny was a great friend of my mother. Old Granny Ward, God rest her, at that time was well over 90, and she could remember the Fenians and the Land League days vividly. So we learned our history firsthand. Well, that was the ring's end of long ago in the days of wooden ships and iron men. Many of the old landmarks had vanished the last time I was home, and some of the people I knew had been laid to rest. The old ring's end clans are scattered to the four corners of the earth. Others have been housed in the new schemes in Ballyfermot and West Cabra. Though some remain, with all the people who moved in when the corporation built block after block of new flats. If I went home today, I might be mistaken for a stranger. But no matter where you wander, if you ever see a man walking down a street with his two hands in his pockets, kicking an empty can, just say, hello, young fella. For nine times out of ten, that man's a ring's ender. The reminiscences of William McGuinness in the Irish Digest in 1961. And that brings us to a close of this uh, special edition of Time Waves. And it also brings us to a close uh, for the year of 2022, our inaugural year on the air here at Rick Radio. As I said, if you're interested in joining uh, Ringsend District Historical Society, you can find them on Facebook. Um, meetings will be held quite regularly and there's some very exciting projects planned for the near future. Uh, so before I wrap up for the year, I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who helped out with the show, everyone who appeared on the show, um, of course to Dylan Clayton for running the studio as ever, uh, to Mick Hanley and to all our, our friends and colleagues uh, at Rick Radio. And on a personal note, I'd just like to say that I, I, I think this radio station is a tremendous resource for the people of Ring's End as is the community centre. 
Um, throughout Dublin, people always say they want a strong sense of community and they want to retain their communities. And the very best way to do that is to get involved in the organisations and the institutions uh, that the community has to its name. I think Ringsend is particularly lucky to have an institution like the Community Centre and an outlet like Rick Radio. So I hope you'll all continue to support it in 2023. So until then, happy Christmas. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you all next year. Would you find a fella from me she called a black rock? No. We don't have reasons. Got the blunt of a whole lot of that general strike in 1913. They were batting into the ground and rings down by the harsh police. I love going down down the Tarncastle Street, looking down the river. Looking at the ships coming from all parts of the world.